Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are, which is always the way I begin our All Rise segment because I am excited. It's just fun to be able to be with you, to share concepts, share ideas with always interesting guests. We talk about things really directly, rather bluntly sometimes here on All Rise, uh, and often these uh, discussions just do not happen in the in the main political parties. We talk about things directly. Uh, I'm a libertarian, and uh, as you, as you're going to hear, uh, we have a libertarian c- candidate for president, Ken Armstrong, from wa- state of Washington, who is with us as our guest. I don't really know Ken all that well, except I've been talking to him more recently. Uh, he's a really good, solid person. So, Ken, welcome to our show. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And uh, frankly speaking, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and what's your background and why are you running for the Libertarian nomination for president in 2020? The stage is yours. Well, Judge, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, it's a pleasure you were on my uh, virtual town hall the other night and uh, we had a, a wonderful time together. And I have been uh, a long time... A fan of yours, so uh, it's it's great to have this opportunity to, to talk with you. Thank uh, you. A, a little a, a little about me. I'm uh, uh, a former NATO base commander, former U.S. Consul General representative to a little Italian island group. I've been uh, an elected official in Honolulu County. I um, have have worked as executive director of a statewide organization of Habitat for Humanity and with other nonprofits. I've been a college instructor and a journalist and uh, and a number of other things. And uh, one of the things I believe I bring to the table as a presidential candidate inside the Libertarian Party is the ability to do more than just simply talk about theory but to, to bring experience and understanding of uh, the good and the bad of what's going on inside of our government. Well, that would keep you very busy. Uh, this is going to be a much longer show than I thought, Ken, because uh, <laughs> there's a lot that, that's going on. You know, it's, it's my view that the government faces success, that if I am overseeing or administering a thousand homeless people this month, but I was only overseeing 800 last month, that's called success. But if you get into the private sector, it's the reverse. Hey, we had a thousand people who were homeless last month, but now they're only 800. We're reducing the number. That was That's called success in the private field. So Big government, and I expect you'll agree with this one, Ken, big government is really, really good and effective at one thing, and that is increasing the size, the cost, and the power of big government. And we've seen that now for decades, and I'm sure you have seen it as well. Well, that's really true, and Eisenhower warned us about it. He saw it coming, 
that there was a mindset in in the military industrial complex that that he referred to um, that growth was the thing that the government was responsible for, and and the government should not be responsible for anything like that. They should they should simply be doing the jobs that were assigned to them in the Constitution, and the government really shouldn't be a growth industry at all. Well, have you looked at the Constitution and ever found any justification for drug prohibition? Uh, I seem to recall that to prohibit alcohol, we needed to pass the 18th Amendment, and then, of course, repealed it with the 21st Amendment. They recognized that at the time, but now we're having drug prohibition without any constitutional basis. But look how it's grown government. Uh, I expect that you agree with that point, Ken Armstrong. That's, you know, that's exactly right, Judge, and of course, uh, you know, you you are much more deeply rooted in the law than I am, but it's a it's an obvious thing that uh, our government understood when they passed the Volstead Act that the Constitution didn't give the the government uh, prohibitionary uh, authority. They had to actually amend the Constitution to do that. And now it seems like every day. Look what the what the government is doing as we're as we're taping your show right now. We're in the middle of this lockdown nationwide, and the government is taking authorities that were never granted in the Constitution. I don't think that the President of the United States has the ability to order lockdown in any fashion. I think that is reserved for the states in the Tenth Amendment. Uh, the states may be able to do that. I'm not even sure of that, but but we're seeing something that is stoking fear, and it just really is concerning to, to see these sorts of things happening where uh, we're basically decimating our economy, and jobs and businesses are not even part of the discussion, much less a part of the equation, and we're going to really suffer for that. Putting people out of work destroying businesses is going to have a major cost. And it's really only libertarians that are talking about this, even to this day. Ken, do you agree? I absolutely agree. And, you know, by the time uh, by the time this episode hits the air, uh, of course, we'll have uh, the benefit of a little bit more hindsight. But my concern with this, we're, we're talking about the social distancing to save lives, and we're talking about uh, prohibiting certain people from going to work to save lives. But if the infrastructure falls apart and the infrastructure is dependent on economic activity, if the infrastructure falls apart, then people with diabetes and heart disease and, and a whole boatload of other ailments are going to have a very hard or impossible time getting the care they need uh, after th- this wave passes. And, and we're going to have an entire second tier of, of death and suffering because the government stepped in and did something that it ought not have done. I believe that there are functions of government appropriate. And of course, Article 1, Section 8 is a good place to start. But one of them is, Ken, and see if you agree with me, to cause a system to be set up that puts accurate information into society, into the marketplace, into for us all. And so if, if people are going to understand the, this virus, then let's, let's 
put out accurate information and let people make their own choices. But another thing that government has a responsibility to do is to plan for pandemics, plan for earthquakes. In the event that you have some of these catastrophes, be ready. You know, have the, the plan in mind, have the facilities in mind, be it the ventilators or whatever. And the federal government, in my view, has really, really failed us with regard to that issue. I assume you agree with that? Well, I do. And as we know now, during the Obama administration, uh, the strategic stockpile was bled down, and the current administration blames the, the previous administration for that. But this administration has had three years to replenish the, the strategic stockpile. And that is a legitimate role of government to be ready for emergency. I was a strategic planner for the Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and uh, and was decorated for uh, bringing together st uh, state, federal, and local agencies to plan for disasters in the area. And I can, I can tell you, watching the way that the administration and the states are handling this, that they are not looking at the strategic plans that were put on the shelf for just this kind of situation. Ken, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I wasn't aware that you had been doing that. What what nature? What was the nature of your planning for? Throw us an emergency and, and tell us what the plans would be. I think we'd be interested. Well, one of the I actually received a, a nomination as federal executive of the year for planning the uh, the execution of an earthquake response in Southern California. I did that in 1991, and, and the response that I used, that I planned, that I coordinated, was actually used three years later during a major earthquake. But uh, the, the, the nature of the planning isn't <clears throat> tied to a specific kind of crisis. The nature of the planning <clears throat> is that you can take this thing off the shelf and you can use it for for any sort of thing that the public is facing. It's how do you deal with shortages of goods and services? How do you deal with uh, if if one first responder isn't able to get to the scene? How do you provide more uh, more responders? How do you provide the medical care? How do you open hospitals where they're needed? All of these things and and we work. This was in 1991. We worked diligently for two years to make sure the plans were on the shelf to handle just such an emergency in Southern California. And when they had a, a, an earthquake in 94, they used exactly that plan. And the, the principles of the plan apply today to what we're doing. The government, you know, in an earthquake plan, for example, you have sanitation issues that are very, very similar to what we're dealing with now in, in terms of the pandemic. The government had those plans on the shelf. They just simply ignored them and, and went into wing it mode. So you are a very powerful person. You put this plan into a... To being and then caused the earthquake three years later so you could show everybody the good planning you had done. Is that what happened? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, I planned to have, uh, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to treat you with even more respect, Ken Armstrong. So you are <laughs> no, a libertarian. How, how long have you been a libertarian and, and why did you become one? 
I, I became a libertarian. I, you know, I make the distinction as many of us do small L and large L. Um, I was a member of, I've been in both of the major parties over the years. In 1998, I was in leadership in the Democratic Party of Hawaii. And uh, my, the governor, who was a friend of mine, uh, was trying to pass a, a tax uh, change that I just absolutely couldn't stomach. And I spoke out against it. And as a result, um, I was invited by the Democratic Party to no longer be in my leadership role. Uh, very much like what Tulsi Gabbard went through during her campaign. The Democratic Party doesn't appreciate people who speak up and step out of line. Uh, so I found myself um, in in uh, collaboration with the Libertarian Party in Hawaii, with Tracy Ryan, who is uh, the perennial leader of the party there. We spoke in front of the state Senate against the tax increase and uh, and found ourselves speaking up on, on other issues of interest to the party. And so it was uh, from 1998 to about 2007 that I considered myself a small-L libertarian. And then in 2007, um, I, I finally realized that the party was just the, the best fit for what I believed in. I can tell you my story was that I was a lifelong Republican until the passage of the so-called Patriot Act, and I could not be a part of any group that would condone, much less assist, this direct frontal assault on our civil liberties. And I still remember, Ken, it took me literally 13 seconds to decide, hey, I really am a libertarian, and I will be for life, that, that our... What is the soul of our country? And we talk about our soul a lot here on All Rise, but our soul is our freedoms and our liberties. And today, I believe our soul is under attack by our very own government. I assume that you have shared that consternation. Uh, you know, I absolutely agree. And I'm a Patrick Henry libertarian. I, I absolutely believe that there is, there is no amount of prosperity that is worth giving up our liberty for. I'm a Ben Franklin libertarian as well in, in one sense, and that is that he said, quote, after the Constitution was, was passed in the, in the Constitutional Convention, that no people should ever give up. If you give up a little freedom for a little more security, you'll end up with neither, and that's certainly my opinion as well. So you are a libertarian. Uh, I believe that the Libertarian Party really is the only party in the mainstream of American political thought today, because we're not interested in polarization, cronyism, as opposed to the other two older, stodgy parties. Do you agree with that? And what do you think sets libertarians apart from Republicans and Democrats? Well, I think our principles set us apart, um, and and the you know it's interesting that inside the party we have a spectrum of thought, everything from a radical anarchist all the way to a, a Ron Paul conservative end of the party. Um, there, there's certainly a broad spectrum of thought inside the Libertarian Party, but we're all pointed at the same principles, the principle of minimum government, some would say none at all, but, but certainly the principle of minimum government, minimum intrusion on our lives, the fact that nobody owns us and nobody has the, the right to make decisions about our lives that don't impact the people around us. So I think those are, are key principles that we live by. I would say in terms of cronyism, 
That's something that as the Libertarian Party becomes more powerful, we will always have to be on guard against. And that's why I'm a constitutionalist as well as a libertarian, because I think we need a strong framework that protects the people from their government. As you may know, Ken, I have written a musical called Convention, The Birth of America, and it, it cites you know things of that kind. And so I really got into the Constitutional Convention, and they baffled, they argued with each other, debated, shouted each other sometimes with regard to various issues. But literally, all 55 delegates agreed that the most important function of government is protecting our liberties from the encroachment of government. And I think that those people would take up arms against what we have done since that time. Our liberties are have really been eroded. Uh, I even wrote a book on drug policy called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It. And it has a chapter in it talking about the erosion of our civil liberties just by quoting United States Supreme Court cases involving drugs. Uh, we, it's tangible that we are losing our freedoms, I, and I, I'm very concerned about that, and I know you are as well. I, I am, and you know, uh, with all respect to, to, to the judiciary, <clears throat> I think a huge mistake in our republic uh, happened in 1803 when we accepted the Marbury versus Madison ruling just completely out of hand. Uh, there, there were two parts to the ruling, one that I truly honor, uh, that that the Constitution isn't just a suggestion, it's the law of the land, and, and, and I have huge respect for that, but that the, the Supreme Court could pass edicts unchecked, that there were no checks and balances against the rulings of the Supreme Court, I think is a, is a mistake in our land. I think that we need to have balance across government that nobody needs to be able to establish any kind of autocratic rule in our country. And we need to protect the Constitution, and particularly in the Constitution, the the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which I think are just, um, they've been gutted in our country. I certainly agree with that, that uh, I haven't seen a reference in a judicial decision, a positive reference to the Ninth or Tenth Amendments uh, in, my, in my recollection, which do say that any rights not enumerated, not in effect provided, delegated by the Constitution to the federal government are what? Are left to the people and to the states. And uh, there's nothing in there about drug prohibition that, that, that I think the federal government can utilize or involving health care or so many other things. It's just been an abrogation of responsibility and, and contrary to the Constitution. So, Ken Armstrong, you are running for president, for the nomination of president for, for the uh, United States as a libertarian. If you were president in our great country, what, what policies would you implement that are different than what we're doing today? Let's get specific. Well, first of all, we have so many people, including people in our party, who who make these wild promises of things that they would do as president. I think that that we have to recognize that the president isn't and should not be all-powerful. Much of what people promise is really stuff that's in purview of Congress. But there are a few things that the president can do. The president can refuse to use powers that have been granted to him. And and immediately coming to mind are the Patriot Act and the war powers. Um, the, the, the president does not need to allow the Justice Department 
to have the the execution authority granted in 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 the uh, Patriot Act. That he can just simply by executive order say we're not going to do that. And and I I think he should. I'm I'm stunned that not only has the Patriot Act been upheld, but it's even been renewed periodically. And and that's insanity in my mind. So Guantanamo still exists. I see that as a blight upon us as to who we are. We have people that have been incarcerated there under our control and jurisdiction for a couple of decades now or close to it. And that is simply un-American. What is your view with regard to Guantanamo and Mr. President Armstrong? Uh, If, in fact, uh, you are elected president, are you going to do anything with regard to that Guantanamo base? It's it's infuriating to me that we use Guantanamo as essentially a loophole in the law by keeping uh, these prisoners offshore. Um, they are uh, they we protect ourselves from the from really from the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, which is insane because the Fourteenth Amendment says if you're in the jurisdiction of the United States government, then you have all of the equal protection under law that anyone has. And and my take is that would include the people at Guantanamo. And in fact, what we should be doing is closing down the prison and allowing somebody to build a resort there or give the land back to Cuba or something. The uh, it, It's a loophole in the law indeed. And uh, it's just, it's, it's something that is not American and uh, that we call them still on the battlefield. And that's the response from Congress or whatever. Oh, no. Well, if we were on the battlefield, are you going to give somebody a lawyer and a trial? I mean, it's just totally different, transparently sophistry from my standpoint. So you do have quite a background in military policy. Uh, what would the country's military policy be in your administration? Uh, well, as I mentioned, I, I don't believe that the president should have the, the power to declare war. Uh, and the reason I believe that, by the way, is that when the president has declared these police actions, we, we don't call them war, but that's what they are, that's done in the, in the basement of the White House, uh, in, in dark corners where the public doesn't know what the thought process is. The, the framers of the Constitution wanted these decisions to be made in the light of day by the, by the people's house, by the House of Representatives, having a discussion in front of the people about what leads them to make that decision. So uh, my, my take is that we would not be in any war that Congress hasn't openly and honestly debated and declared in front of the American people. So you mean we would know who the enemy is and what the threat is to our security and our safety, where they are, what are our goals, how will we know when we've reached those goals? How would any of those apply to what we're doing in Afghanistan for the last 20 years? Well, as as you know, first of all, we're in Afghanistan uh, on a loophole in the in the NATO charter. Uh, that's what gives us the authority to be there. And then beyond that, um, we're we're there uh, 
uh, as the Afghanistan papers pointed out just a few months ago when when they became uh, public to us, that uh, the government has known for 20 years that we are not winning and can't win and can't, uh, can't achieve our objectives there, and that the government has lied to us about uh, what we're doing and how we're doing it. It's, it's very similar to Lyndon Johnson dropping bombs on unoccupied jungle so that he could tell the American people he was still prosecuting a war in Vietnam. We, uh, we, we had previously here uh, talked about Afghanistan and, and how we ended up getting in there. And we had a really interesting guest who was saying that we were lured into Afghanistan by Osama bin Laden. Why? Because he wanted us out of the Middle East, particularly out of Saudi Arabia. But if we had required a declaration of war, which, by the way, is, like you say, only in the ability of Congress, they would we would have required an open discussion instead of, like you say, in the basement of the White House, where we could actually debate these things and vote on them. And giving the president a War Powers Act is a whole lot different than my putting my vote in favor of going to war in such and such a place against such and such an enemy. So, President Armstrong, uh, bless you for that. I, I fully agree with you. These are things that we need to do. Uh, we're going to have a break for a couple of minutes and hear some libertarian messages and the rest. Then we're going to talk about NATO because uh, Ken Armstrong has been a, a, a force in NATO and been involved with it, has a lot of information that we don't have. So we'll come back after these words and talk a little bit about what NATO is today in the year 2020. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. 
Well, welcome back. You again heard the theme from Americans All, uh, which is my musical, and I'm, I'm proud of it. Uh, it helps to mentor our children. But uh, before we come back to our really interesting guest, uh, Ken Armstrong, a libertarian candidate for the nomination for president, uh, my wife has always asked me to be a little bit silly. And here, this is totally not appropriate with regard to my guest, because this isn't true. But I remember a quote from Harry Truman, who said, always be sincere even if you don't mean it. In fact, he meant that as a joke, but uh, that is not the case with, with our guest, Ken Armstrong, because he is a sincere, dedicated man, lots of experience in lots of different areas, and Ken, one of them is with regard to NATO. Like we said before the break, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it was a powerful force for many years while the Soviet Union was still a threat or we were still going back and forth. Uh, it's evolved since then, maybe, uh, and maybe not. What is your view of NATO? What what part did you play in it? And uh, how would you treat NATO today? Well, I commanded a, a little NATO base on Libya's doorstep, actually about 90-some miles from the coast of Libya. Uh, on a little Italian island called Lampedusa. Uh, it, some people, if they're, they're old enough, might recall that in 86, <clears throat> pardon me, Libya fired a couple of Scud missiles at a U.S. base, and that was the base that I ended up commanding uh, two years after the missile crisis. So I was the commander during the Gulf of the second Gulf of Sidra incident when the U.S. shot down two MiG fighters in the Gulf of Sidra. And, uh, and I have the distinction, actually, of having Muammar Gaddafi threaten my life. I had Sixth Fleet Intelligence call me up from La Maddalena and, and tell me that uh, Gaddafi had threatened my life. My response when, when I was told that was, couldn't I just invite him over for a cup of coffee? <clears throat> uh, the intelligence officer didn't have much of a sense of humor about that. But I have to say, honestly, today... Uh, as I look at NATO, uh, the Cold War is over, and um, the the original purpose for NATO has been accomplished. I think it's time to do some major restructuring, and I think diplomacy does need to be a big part of NATO. I think these days we're we're really too quick to go to the red button. We're we're too quick to to uh, to send the military and the use force. And, uh, and, and to put our young people in harm's way in situations where diplomacy might be a much stronger approach. I think it was Ron Paul who said, if, I, if I'm correct, that we have, the United States of America has something on the order of 600 military reservations in countries around the world, not including the United States, 600. We should have an audit, from my standpoint, listening to the military, listening to strategists, to see how many of those are really necessary for our security. And, and one reason that I give is that I really love New Zealanders. I think they're wonderful people. I've been to their country. But if they were to have a naval air station, maybe 10 miles away from my house, I'd start not, not liking them quite so much. You know, the noise, maybe they get drunk sometimes and, and uh, lure our women, whatever. So I think that we're facing that. We could be more safe around the world, it would seem to me, if we would allow the military to do that audit. And they'd probably, without even thinking about it, be able to close about 400 of those bases in today's world, and, and we'd probably be safer. You're closer to this than I am. Ken, uh, tell us your thoughts about all those military bases, and are they still necessary? 
They're not necessary, but, you know, uh, applying the non-aggression principle, one of the things we don't want to do is we don't want to create harm for the people who are in those areas where those spaces exist. Now, we've harmed them by occupying their territory. Uh, let's use, it's not a NATO base, but let's use Okinawa, Japan, uh, for example. That base uh, has been there since 1945. And it, over that period of time, it has, there have been a number of problems in the community as a result of that base. So there are people in the community who are, are very much against having an American military presence there. But most of the community recognizes that if the Americans simply pulled up and left, that it would cause a huge divot. And I'm, I'm assuming since you're a judge, you have to be a golfer. Um, it, it would create an Four. enormous difference. <laughs> and, and we don't want to create harm in, in the Okinawan economy. So my proposal is, and naturally we would need to negotiate this with the Japanese government, but my proposal is that we replace the military force on that base with something that looks very much like the Peace Corps, and I'm not pandering to a former Peace Corps member here, but I, this has been what I've been saying for a long time, uh, something that looks like a, a Peace Corps establishment for the purpose of creating an international free trade zone on what used to be the military base there, so that resort operations cultural operations, international trade, like a, like a giant duty-free shop where the military base used to be. Well, it's certainly good to be sensitive uh, to the needs of other people, and if they've been relying upon us, those are those are obviously things that, that we should take into account. Uh, it's costing the U.S. taxpayer a lot, and, and Donald Trump, I, I don't have lots of things uh, positive with regard to that, but he was able to talk to the other NATO alliance uh, countries and, and have them pay more of their, I hate the word fair share, but that's what it would be. But I also believe, and I, I expect that, of course, you were in the military and so was I. I agree with Thomas Jefferson, who said that any country that would beat their swords into plowshares soon will be plowing for somebody else. Uh, there are a lot of bad, there are bad people out there. And if you're weak, uh, we're going to wish that we had maintained our strong military. I think it is downright libertarian to maintain a strong military. Uh, do you agree with that as well, Ken Armstrong? You know, I absolutely do, Judge. Uh, there are a lot of people in the Libertarian Party who just vilify the military. I uh, was in one debate where somebody called people stupid for joining the military. Uh, naturally, as a former military person myself, uh, I, I don't have that point of view, but I have seen the, the good that can be done. I've seen, I've seen amazing good, and I've seen the commitment of the military people. The problem is not the people who are doing, doing that job. The problem is our civilian government leadership that is so corrupt that we use our military to achieve economic goals and adventurism. Well, and we do. Uh, I think that the libertarians 
taking the declaration of war seriously is the best thing that could ever happen to our military because, like you're saying, we do put our troops in harm's way for political reasons or whatever, but without enough analysis so that they are good people and we order them to go into battle in such and such a place. What's their answer? They salute and say, yes, sir. And so we have that absolute obligation to make sure that they're putting themselves into that difficult, dangerous situation is really necessary to protect our freedoms, our liberties, and our, our national interests. So I think we're in accord on that. I think George, that uh, Thomas Jefferson was right as well. So what is your view with regard to trade? Uh, I, I see it, first of all, Historically, for the most part, uh, people don't tend to shoot their customers. So that if you're trading with someone, you're much more likely to stay at peace with them and be involved with diplomacy and negotiations. Uh, and you're also able to emphasize what we do best, and they are able to emphasize what they do best. So free trade is a wonderful thing to the degree that we are talking about the Constitutional Convention. It is in the Constitution that uh, individual states are not able to put up trade barriers amongst themselves so that if North Carolina didn't want to have their manufactured goods from Massachusetts, they could have put up some form of trade barrier. Can you imagine what the deterrence would have been to our economy as we've been progressing? Well, it's probably easier today for the United States to trade with Japan than it was back in the colonial area for uh, North Carolina to trade with Massachusetts. So free trade is a good thing, I think, for everyone. Uh, have I converted you to that, Mr. Armstrong? <laughs> well, you didn't need to convert me. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Jeffersonian in my in my approach there. Uh, Jefferson, in his inaugural address, said that we should be at peace with all nations, at commerce with all nations, and I'll come back to that in a second, and good friends to all nations. Now, I don't honestly think that Jefferson thought that we would always be friendly with all nations. He was not a a foolish person. But I think what he meant was that we respect the sovereignty of all nations. We respect the right of a nation to make its own determinations. And and the commerce part, which I think he put in the middle as the linchpin to the thing, that you're, you know, you're absolutely right, Judge. If we're in open trade with a nation, it's very hard to be at war with them. And, and the converse is also true. If we're at war, it's hard to be at trade. So the, the better thing is for us to open our theater of trade. You know, in the, in the 70s, we gave China most favored nation trading status, and it was a big deal. President Nixon opened the door on that, and, and, and President Ford furthered it. And, and then in, in the 2000s, President Trump is vilifying China for taking advantage of the status we gave them. If we didn't have any such thing, if we just allowed American industry to trade wherever they choose to trade, rather than having barriers, we would have a robust international trading economy. 
And one thing that is not a part of the equation as direct as discussed is, look, if you have, for example, China flooding our markets with below-cost uh, goods, uh, our customers really benefit from that. If, if China wants to pay us to buy their goods, you know, if, if that's it's a good quality, then, then that's a good thing. I also think that, however, that China must be brought into the world community. And what I mean by that is that they do not uh, uh, go along with patents. They do not respect patents in many ways. A trade secrets are our technology. They pirate it, and, and there should be sanctions for that. And But we should do it publicly. This The discussions that President Trump was having with China were all secret. And if you're going to increase our trade barriers, the only good thing from that, Ken, and let's see if you agree, the only thing good from that is to use that threat to reduce trade barriers. But as soon as you put on trade barriers, then you're basically penalizing our consumers here, and they're the ones that pay that supposed tax. So we should do this publicly. If we're in fact going to sanction China, we should tell the world. The reason we're doing this is because you are stealing our trade secrets, or you're you're not honoring patents and the rest of that, and bring them into the trade community that way. What is your handle as President uh, Armstrong with regard to China and trade, Ken? Well, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's it's um, it's against all of our principles to allow our president to negotiate in secret for any kind of diplomacy, whether it's trade diplomacy, whatever it is. Uh, the 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 whole intention of having a president who is accountable to Senate is that the people would know what negotiations took place and what was on the table. The only reason to keep trade uh, negotiations a secret is to protect people's special interests. Uh, you know, a, a, a particular company, I won't name one, but a particular company wants to protect its interests in a country, and through its lobbying, it has gotten word to the president, whatever you do, don't mess with my interests in this country or or do mess with the interests of my competitor in this country. And those things end up in trade negotiations because they are special interests. And if the president isn't negotiating special interests like that, and, and I believe he has, then he needs to prove it to the American people by making what he does on our behalf a public record. Yes. Yes, hear ye, hear ye. I, I fully agree. So let's train, change the subject a little bit. Uh, domestically, Ken, uh, what is your view with regard to our immigration policy? Uh, what is it and, and how you would, would you change it, if at all? Well, in terms of the, the, the uh, visa quota idea or, or, or notion that we work with today, I think that uh, we need to we need to eliminate the idea of quotas from our lexicon entirely. Uh, if an employer wants to employ somebody who lives in another country, I think the employer ought to be able to do that and freely negotiate uh, with with people to come and go and and do work. And that only ultimately helps to grow our industry create more jobs, create more opportunity in our country. Likewise, if somebody wants to come and visit their family members in the United States, 
The free movement of people is a basic American concept. And to say that Americans can't have their family members come visit them because they're in a foreign country is, is just, that's an un-American uh, concept. So we should be allowing free movement of people. We should certainly be screening those people for bad actors, for people who are maybe providing, uh, presenting health risks to the country. There are certain things that we ought to be screening for as they come and go. But aside from that, people ought to be able to come and go freely. I actually have a proposal, and your friend Larry Sharp contributed to it, um, that we create international free trade zones on the, on the border with Mexico. And those would look very much like what I was talking about in Okinawa, for example. We would create these international zones not built with any taxpayer money, completely entrepreneurial built. Uh, and those zones would allow people to come and go freely from either side of the border to do free trade inside the zone, to have cultural exchange, resort living, anything that the entrepreneurs want to, to have happen inside those zones. And we have consular activities 24 hours a day, seven days a week to allow people to, to get their visas renewed and approved and, and uh, allow for those, those free movements of people that I was talking about. And incidentally, Judge, I don't know if you're aware of this, in 2016, 42% of all of the undocumented aliens inside the United States were visa overstays. They were not people who swam across the river or climbed over the wall. 42% were visa overstays. And, and that's just our system letting people down. That's all that is. <laughs> yeah, I, I think your idea of free zones is a really good one, that anything that promotes free trade, uh, exchange students, exchange of ideas, the rest of that is a good idea. I would even go to the extent, Ken, and see if you agree, I would issue work visas pretty much liberally after, again, the screening process, like you said, for medical problems or as terrorism propensities, whatever. If somebody wants to pursue the American dream and come over here and roll up his, her sleeves and work and support themselves, bless them. Then, by the way, they'd be here legally. They could go back and forth across the border. They could get a driver's license. Then they'd have insurance, uh, they'd be, and they wouldn't be taken advantage of by a lot of employers. But no welfare is attached. Uh, if they want to bring their families and support their families, uh, that's fine, too. We will provide emergency medical systems because, you know, if you're bleeding on the street, we're compassionate people. And yes, we will educate your children. But otherwise, I just would not attach that, that welfare system to them. And a lot of people then would uh, either go home if they couldn't find that or come here to, to roll up their sleeves. Would you go along with that work visa as well? But again, I think you'd have to punish or have had sanctions for employers that hired people that did not have that have that work visa. Yeah, I, I don't. I actually don't think it would be necessary to punish. I think that, you know certainly that that's a a facet of of government uh, to to enforce law. But but honestly, I think if we had that thing that you're describing, where employers could say, "I'd really like to employ some Guatemalan nationals." to come build my product, I, I believe an American employer has the right to make that decision. 
and and simply sponsor the people to come into the country, and that would do, that would trigger getting them work visas. I absolutely agree with that. Well, and also it would take away the incentives from people from Salvador or whatever to come up here because you would then have your free zone down in, in Salvador and Guatemala as well, and they would have employment down there, and they could focus on what they would do. It just brings a normalcy to the world. Let me, before we go back, because we're certainly going to talk about this coronavirus and, and the, the pandemic that is a serious thing, but uh, I think that the framers of the 14th Amendment See if I can spring this one on you, Ken. The framers of the 14th Amendment were really short-sighted because they did not anticipate the airplane. Now, what do I mean by that? Today, if you were in Mexico City and wanted to fly to Toronto, but you had a stopover for fuel in St. Louis, and then a woman gave birth to a child during that stopover, that child legally, as interpreted in the 14th Amendment, would become an American citizen. Well, I don't think the framers had that in mind. They had other things, be it the slaves, they had uh, even the Native Americans, but we should interpret the 14th Amendment, it says, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Well, Somebody that's just here on a, a quick visa on a visit to Yellowstone National Park is not subject to our jurisdiction as such. They're subject to their own country's jurisdiction. But I do not think that people that are born here automatically should become citizens, even as I interpret the 14th Amendment, even though the framers were a bit short-sighted. You think they were short-sighted as well, Ken? Well, I think it's true that they couldn't have imagined the, the, the way that people travel today. I think there's a simple fix for that. And again, we come back to these international free trade zones. If we created a bubble of an international zone over the international terminals of our major airports, then that international zone is by definition no longer in the 14th Amendment jurisdiction of the United States. It is an international free zone. And, and and that precludes people just simply doing the, the, the birth thing, uh, you know, on, on American soil. Uh, people who are legitimately here in this country uh, are, are entitled to the, the, all of the protection under law of the 14th Amendment. But somebody who's just passing through is not, is, is not by, by, that logic subject to the government of the United States. Well, in the short time remaining, Ken, it's certainly been interesting. I appreciate your coming on as my guest, and, and Godspeed to you with regard to uh, the libertarian nomination. Um, but we are in this pandemic. We do have a coronavirus. Uh, what form of authority would you exercise being the president of the United States uh, and our government with regard to this pandemic? Well, I think that the history will probably uh, validate that the government has let us down enormously and to, to the major disruption of uh, local economies and mom-and-pop businesses and that sort of thing. I think that what we should be doing right now is getting as many Americans tested as we possibly can. It's it's just absolutely stunning to me that that there are, are developing nations who are doing a much better job of testing their citizens 
than we're doing. We should be testing people. We should be making it a priority to get healthy people back out into the workplace and testing them again whenever they need to get tested. We should make it as as normal as a traffic light to be able to be tested to make sure that people are healthy and keep the healthy people out there keeping the engine turning over. Our government is doing the opposite. We're shutting down the economy. We're destroying mom and pop businesses. And we're, we're, we're going to be in a season of foreclosures, bankruptcies, economic disruptions like we have never seen since even the Great Depression. You're, you're absolutely right. And Ken, thank you for what you have done, uh, even the planning at the uh, Port of Authority in, Lo- in Los Angeles. And what had you been president through these last uh, five or eight years, uh, we would not be going through these problems. And the FDA and our government is prohibiting, keeping, slowing down this process for de- for developing antibiotics, to, for, for uh, getting uh, inoculations, for getting testing equipment, even for getting these masks. You know, government isn't working nearly as well. It, it obstructs the, the what we actually want to have happen. So people out there give serious consideration to supporting the libertarian candidate, Ken, Ken Armstrong. Uh, I am running as well, but I am just happy to be able to talk openly with, with a fellow in arms, with, 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 a, with a brother Ken. So really thank you for having you. You had me on your show. I have had you on mine. Appreciate your thoughts. It's really interesting thoughts. I don't disagree with pretty much anything. I have maybe nuances that we would disagree with, but let's get this together for the, for the benefit of our country, for the benefit of our children, for the benefit of our economy. Uh, let's do this. It's what we discuss on All Rise, the libertarian way with Judge Jim Gray. Libertarian values would reduce these harms enormously, benefit our, our country, and benefit the world. So thank you. There are a lot of bad things happening in the world, but there are a lot of good things as well. And we've been discussing these here with our friend Ken Armstrong running for libertarian nomination for president. So thank you. Tune in again next week or listen on demand anytime you wish through the Voice America Network. In the meantime, before we meet again, this is Judge Jim Gray signing off like I always do by saying, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds that help us stand strong. We are Americans Oh